Father, we give you praise for today. We thank you. We worship you because you are God. Father, we exalt you for your hand upon our lives. Father, we pray that as we go into your word this evening, that you speak to us in Jesus' name. <coughs> Let every single thing that we say today give you glory. And let your children, or myself included, learn from all that we would say today in Jesus' name. In Jesus' mighty name we've prayed. Amen. Can we open our Bibles to Hebrews 6? Hebrews chapter 6. We have quite a bit to talk about today because I'm introducing a new series. But I'm sure we'll still be able to go through everything in good time. Hebrews 6, verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of the faith, of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Amen. This scripture, these two verses are going to make up the anchor scripture for a series that we're going to be looking at for the next couple of months and it will take us towards the end of this year. And the title of that series is the Groundwork Series. The reason why we call it the Groundwork Series is because here, the writer of Hebrews related all these topics, the six in number, six themes, and he called them the foundational principles of the doctrine of Christ. And he said that they didn't want to lay that foundation again. But he said in verse 3, if you read a bit further, he said, we will do it if what, if time permits, or if God rather permits. But if you go to chapter 5, just before, you will find out what the difference between these foundational principles are and other things that Christians would move on to in what we will call maturity. So I'll read chapter 5 from verse 11 to 14. It says, Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And I become such as have need of milk, and not strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even who by reason have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Amen. So here we see the thought process that the writer was having. The writer was talking about the fact that, in his opinion, the people he was writing to 
were already supposed to be teachers of the word. They were supposed to be grown. But he believed that in the state that they were in, they still needed to relearn the foundational principles of the oracles of God. And for that reason, he could not move on to other deeper things that they should be learning at that particular time. And if you read it, you, you read it with a tone of disappointment because the writer sounds disappointed, doesn't he? He sounds disappointed. It feels like he should be past this, that he shouldn't have to talk about this anymore because he has much more deeper things to share with them. He expects that at this time in their spiritual growth or in their spiritual walk, that some things should have happened in their lives. And even at that point, they should have become teachers. The reason why I feel the need to share this first before I dive into these topics is because what this writer is saying essentially is two things, actually. The first part of it is that there should be noticeable and palpable growth in every Christian's life. That a Christian is not allowed to be stagnant. Sometimes I have taught here that it's not about how long, it's how well. And that is true. But let's not deny the fact that how long matters. If you've been in the faith for a specific amount of time, and time passes and you're under the unction of God, there's an expectation on you. You're supposed to grow. There are things that, it's not like you start to take them for granted, but there are things that you're supposed to know. There are principles that you're supposed to live by because there are so many deeper things that God has in store for you that are beyond the foundational principles of the faith. And it's sad that the need for growth is not emphasized so much in church today. But it's supposed to put pressure in quotes on us that we should grow. But the second half of it is what led us to this series, is that the writer did not just, you know, admonish them and tell them, oh, you people should be growing by now. You're still drinking milk instead of meat. In chapter 6, he went into listing six different themes or six different topics that he felt were characteristics of what of that milk. Six different themes that he felt that were things that any mature Christian should know. And that's the motivation and inspiration behind this series. And the first one that he has on his list is repentance from dead works. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to look at it today, and we're going to look at it in two weeks' time. So we'll spend two different um, days examining repentance from dead works. But the first thing I want to ask is, why repentance? And I have two reasons here. The reason why we need to talk about repentance is because the primary failure of the Christian experience is repentance. And what I mean by that is 
Repentance is the only aspect or the only part of the personal salvation experience that is man's responsibility. And because it's the only part that is man's responsibility, that means that it's the only part that can fail. Do we agree? We have to. The reason why I say this is, we usually say that you don't do anything to earn your salvation. How many of you have heard that before? It's often said. And that's true on a cosmic level. And what that means is that that is true for humanity. Humanity does not do anything to earn salvation. Salvation is a gift from God to mankind that he has given because Christ has come and he has died and he has gone. But you see, on a personal level, there is one aspect of salvation as an experience to a person that is dependent on the person. And that singular aspect is repentance. It's the only thing. Everything else is done by God. God is the one that forgives. God is the one that justifies. God is the one that makes righteous. But you see, man is the one that repents. And both repentance into the new birth and repentance within the Christian life and experience are the primary failure points of the Christian life. Because even as Christians, we don't know how to repent. And that might sound surprising to you, but we don't. Not a lot of people know how to what? To repent. Unbelievers don't know how to repent or are not willing to repent. It's the single point of failure. Because if we can tackle that, we've tackled everything. Matthew 3 verse 2 basically shows us, I'm not going to read it because it's a very, very short verse. It's when John the Baptist first came on the scene. And essentially what John the Baptist said was what he said they should repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. If you read further to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, you could find out that that was when Jesus now began his own ministry. And Jesus opened his mouth and said what? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's quite clear that it was very, very primary in the heart of God to let man know that he has a part to play in the work that is to be done. Jesus came and yes, he came to die. Jesus knew his own part. Jesus wasn't burdening man with his own responsibility as God. But Jesus knew that it would all boil down to one thing. No matter what has been done for us in this world, no matter the gift of salvation and the beautiful sacrifice that Jesus has paid, if man does not repent, it's useless. Man has to repent. So it's no surprise that when he came on the scene, that was his charge. When he sent his disciples out to preach for the first time, what he told them to tell them to the house of Israel is what? Tell them, repent. When Peter delivered his first message in the book of Acts and he was done 
And the people that were around said, what shall we do? What did Peter tell them? Repent and receive the gift of salvation, the Holy Spirit. It's the constant theme because it's the single point of failure. Second reason why repentance is important is because, is important rather, is because every other theme of the Christian life rests on it, like I've already alluded to. And every other theme that we will be exploring, even in this series, rests on repentance. Amen? Amen. So what is repentance? Repentance in Greek... which is metanoia, means to change your mind for the better. But you see, this is one of those, I guess, unique times when I actually prefer the Hebrew and the context that it was used in the Bible. Because in Hebrew, repentance is teshuva, or teshuva. And what teshuva means is to return. It was used particularly and it's still used in Judaism because it means to return to what? To return to God. And what that essentially means is that like many things in the Christian life and the Christian faith, there is a negative and there is a positive side to repentance. And what I mean by that is there is something to withdraw from, from and there is something to push to. So repentance is not just changing your mind and choosing not to go down the path that you were on before. Amen? Repentance is also turning towards God. So if you take the negative and ignore the positive, what you're practicing is abstinence. And if you reject the negative and try to take on the positive, what you're practicing is hypocrisy. So essentially, if all you do is try to turn away from your ways and you do not turn towards God, what you're doing is what you're abstaining, is abstinence. You're just practicing avoidance of particular habits or particular things. You have to turn to God. And if you refuse to take up the negative, so you refuse to drop things, and you claim to what? <clears throat> to want to pursue God without changing your mind, you're a hypocrite. And that's the primary accusation that Jesus had of the Pharisees. Because they were not willing to repent. But in the public eye, they were the ones responsible for religion. They were the example of religious life and what it means to actually serve God in piety and holiness. And Jesus called them hypocrites because how can you, in public, claim to be what? The example for holiness. How can you claim to embrace the positives when you are not choosing to what? To renounce and change your mind and turn from your ways. It's hypocrisy. And this is the important thing that we have to note. That repentance has these two aspects to it. 
you cannot afford to just pick one. Amen? I'd like us to read Second Chronicles 7.4, which is a scripture that I like a lot. 7.14, rather. It says, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their what? Their land. One of the reasons why I like this scripture is because it contains everything. It contains them turning from what? From their wicked ways. But it also contain, contains them what? And coming to God in, in prayer. And then God will what? He will forgive. The gift of forgiveness is readily available. But you have to seek God and you have to turn from your wicked ways. That's what completes the repentance process. Picking one without the other, you're practicing something else. So I want us to look at aspects of repentance really quickly. Or aspects, like I said in the manual, of true repentance. And I want us to open Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. I'll read 8 to 9 for context. Matthew 3, 8 says, Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for what? For repentance. Verse 9 says, And think not within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able to raise these stones, able to, is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. He said they should bring up fruits of what? Meat for repentance. Meaning that repentance has some things that has to surround it. Essentially, he was talking to the Pharisees. But he wasn't just talking to the Pharisees, he was talking to Israel. And we'll see that towards the end of this lesson in Luke's account. Because Luke's account actually expands on this a bit more. But I just wanted us to see the fact that their fruits meet what? Unto repentance. Repentance does not just exist without what? Signs. You would see that it's there. But before you can see that repentance exists, true repentance permeates the entire soul. And there is a process. And it starts from the mind. Which is why the definition of repentance itself is a change of what? Of your mind. If the mind doesn't change concerning that thing, you can't produce those fruits. There has to truly be what? A change of mind. And one of the primary signs of a change of mind is true confession. If you notice, I've been using the word true a lot. And the reason why is because a lot of these words, we are used to them, we're, using, we're used to having a definition or a description for them in contemporary English what language that do not particularly suit the spiritual connotations of what we are explaining. So what is true confession or what is confession? To confess is to agree wholeheartedly with God about your sin. Particularly in the area of responsibilities and consequences. I'm going to repeat that. 
To confess is to agree what? Wholeheartedly with what? With God about your sin, particularly in the area of responsibility and what? And consequences. Confession is beyond simply what? Admitting. It goes beyond admittance. It has to be devoid of excuses or rationalizations or explanations or defenses in your heart. Because if you still have those, your mind has not really what? Changed. So what is coming out of your mouth is not a confession. The most classic example we have of this is our father Adam, our forefather Adam. When God met him in the garden and said, Adam, did you eat of the fruit that what? That I asked you to eat. His response was what? It is the woman that what? That you gave me. That's not a confession. That was a backhanded admittance. He didn't deny it because God knew that's what he had done it. But he still had what? An excuse. He had a what? He had a reason. That's the woman you gave me. That's why what? I did it. It's not confession. True confession is agreeing what? Wholeheartedly with God about your sin. So you and God are on the same page on the matter. That's the first step of repentance. That is when you can say that you've truly what? Changed your mind. And if you look into your manual, you will see that I said aspects of true repentance, and we said we're going to study Psalm 51. So I'll need you to open your Bible to Psalm 51. And I think Psalm 51 is probably the most powerful psalm when it comes to repentance. This is the psalm that David wrote on the back end of his sin with Beersheba. And I want you to read, I want to read for you the aspect of this psalm that shows what his confession. I'll read from verse 1 to verse 4. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my what? From my sin. Verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou wert judgest. That is what? A confession. Because he had aligned himself with what? With God on the matter. Essentially, he was telling God, you are right. It's not just about, I did it now. It's what, this is the consequence of what I did. I wronged what? You. And this is how seriously you take this thing. Repentance is not something that we can do as a reflex action. That essentially is what I am saying. Repentance takes what? Deep thought. 
Because it starts from the mind. It takes deep thought. Because it starts from what? From the mind. And from here in Psalm 51, it's clear, even from you that is reading it, that David has thought about this thing. He knows. He's what? He's aware. This is not some haphazard talk or expression coming from his lips. So that's the first thing. It has to come from the mind. Because it's greater than just admitting. And it has to be devoid of excuses and rationalizations. When we come before God, the way Adam came before God, and we're still saying, God is the woman that you give me. That's not repentance. When we've not aligned our minds to God, regarding that particular action, or that particular life, it's not repentance. Which is why, when we bring it down to evangelism, you cannot compel someone to say what we call the sinner's prayer. Amen. And what I mean by that is, it's not enough for you to say, oh, repeat after me, in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus. I come before you, Lord Jesus, today. The person repeats. And if the person has not come to a point of repentance, that is an empty prayer. I hope you know. It's an empty prayer. The person in your teaching or in the message of that day, whoever, whether it's a crusade or a church meeting or the conversation that the one-on-one conversation that anyone has had with that person must have to have been brought to a point where they are able to see God's perspective on what? On sin. They have to align with God in their mind. That okay, where I am now is what? Is wrong. And the consequence is what? Is perishing. They have to be able to understand that. As they grow in their Christian life, their understanding will obviously deepen. But if there's no flicker of that in their hearts, and they are not brought towards repentance, that prayer is empty. Because you have to believe and what? And confess. You can't just confess what? Alone. And if it's not rooted in something that is in your heart, where the root is, is what is the mind. Then it's not a confession. The second thing I want to talk about is that true repentance also has an effect on the emotions. There are two primary emotions that are vital to the subject of repentance. The first is godly sorrow. And the second is hatred. Godly sorrow and what? And hatred. Can we open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7.10? 2 Corinthians 7.10. The Bible says here, for godly sorrow walketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh what? Death. So we need to describe and differentiate between the sorrow of the world and godly sorrow. 
The sorrow of the world is what I often call remorse. Amen. I remember that um, here when we teach foundation school, there is actually a section for repentance. And in the foundation school curriculum, one of the things we teach is repentance is not remorse. Right? I must have taught us at some point, which is true. But the context of this is remorse is the sorrow of the world. What does that mean? Remorse is feeling sorrowful for the consequence or the consequences that sin produces. It is ultimately selfish. It is about you. And it does not lead to any true change. It doesn't lead to any what? Any true change. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, is about God. In that it is us being able to view sin from God's perspective and how it affects our relationship with him. And when that happens to a man, it will lead him to what? To brokenness. It will break that man. One of my favorite teachers who's gone now, he died long before I was born because like Pastor Femi says sometimes, he says all the good ones have died and they've gone. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And there's a message that he, he thought called Sin and the Body. It's a message that has blessed me a lot because I've listened to it a lot of times. One of the things he said in that message was, he said that in his time as a pastor, throughout his life, that rarely did he ever find someone come to him broken about sin in that Pastor Martin this thing that I did is really affecting my relationship with God and I don't want to do it anymore like I'm, I'm tired I, I love God, I want to serve him genuinely he said he never got that once that usually what people will come and tell him is Pastor Martin I feel so bad I feel so horrible I feel so bad. I have not been able to eat. And he's like, that feeling passes. Because that feeling does not hold what? It doesn't hold water. You might feel bad today, but that's just a function of your conscience. Because you have what? A conscience. If there is no true repentance on a specific sin, and a man commits that sin often enough, his conscience will continue to what? Get deader and deader and deader concerning that action. And that's what the Bible says about what? Smearing our conscience with a hot what? With a hot iron. So you find that even Christians are unreceptive to some things. They don't consider some things to be wrong anymore. Because the time they did it the first time, they felt bad. Then that feeling went and did it again. And they felt bad, but a little less bad than the first time. And it keeps going like that, like that, like that. And it takes a lot for your conscience to be revived again. It's the Spirit of God that has to do that. Because remorse is not repentance. Godly sorrow is not selfish. Man is so self-centered. And remorse is what is self-centered. It's about you. It's about you mourning the consequences of sin. It doesn't focus on our relationship with God. And if we go back to the scripture that we are studying in Psalm 51 you will see that what David felt was not remorse. 
it was godly sorrow. And it was from that verse that we get some of the most powerful songs that we sing today. Because when you get Psalm 51 and you start reading from verse 7, it says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may what? May rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with what? With thy free spirit. This verse we just read, was David's focus on himself? No. David was a broken man here. After Nathan had confronted him about the sin with Bathsheba, and he had come to a place where he knew this is what I did, he broke him. And the reason he broke him is because, like we can read here, he's worried and concerned about his fellowship with what? With God. Which is why he's saying, restore my joy, the joy of my salvation unto me. Say, make me hear joy and gladness again. And that is what is a picture of godly sorrow. It's not remorse. How many of us read in our Bible that Judas was remorseful? He's there. He felt bad. Doesn't mean he repented. He felt bad. He had regrets. That's not repentance. Because remorse is selfish. It's about you. It's very self-centered. Godly sorrow is about God. And it will break a man. Second emotion we're going to talk about is hatred. In that we must also have a hatred for sin. One of the reasons why many people, Christians and non-Christians alike, struggle with sin is because they don't hate it. In fact... There is a secret love for what? For sin. And until a hatred or a revulsion is produced in us concerning sin, then experiencing true repentance is going to be very difficult. You have to what? You have to hate it. This is the only aspect where hatred is not what it's not wrong, because God Himself what hates sin, and we're supposed to hate it just like Him. When I think of this, it's fascinating to me how how easy it is for natural man and for human beings to develop hate so easily for things that they should not be developing hate for. Hate is so easy for us. Even if you don't go as far as hate, revulsion is so easy for us for the most trivial things. So I think a lot about like the UK particularly. And this example might be an example out of left field, but it kind of matters. Because you know, 
football is popular in what the UK. Like it's one of the uh, major economic what, sources of revenue, so they take it seriously. Now follow some clubs, and you see that sport is very different in the UK than what in the US. So recently, some fans, the clubs went on tour in the US, and some British fans also went to the US on tour. And some of the British fans that were being interviewed, they were, they were saying things like, the culture is very different here. So a club called Arsenal played Chelsea at some point. And one of the Arsenal fans said, as Arsenal was playing, and Arsenal scored like the second or the third goal, that the US Chelsea fan beside him tapped him and said, well, you guys are playing really well. This is a really good game. And the British guy, he looked at himself and said, this can never happen in England because there is a hatred. It's a very palpable word, hatred. And I don't use hatred lightly here. There is a hatred between fans of what? Of that club and the other one because they are both in London. And there is a huge rivalry to the point that if what happened in the US in terms of the scoreline happened in England, there would have been riots on the streets. Like people do not get home safely if they had to travel to the other stadium because someone can attack you. All because of what? A football game. It gets that what? It gets that tribal and visceral. And I was just thinking about it and saying, hatred comes so easy. So, so easy to humanity over the things that very important. But when it comes to sin, Because we're in this flesh and we're in this body, man has difficulty hating what? Sin. But you have to. Something you have to work on. So prayer point you have to what? You have to pray. It's something you have to practically fight. Like Paul said, he said, I bring my body under what? Subjection. Because repentance has to permeate your emotions in that way too. You have to have a revulsion for offending God. For doing things that would, would upset him. And finally, repentance has to pass through your what? Your will. Your will is the seat of action. Now this is where the world will now see the active change in direction that, you what, that you've taken. Without repentance, going through your mind and going through your emotions and your heart and all that, anything that happens on the outside is just hypocrisy, like I've said. People try to act good. It doesn't mean that they are repented. They are pretending and they are hypocrites. They can't do it forever. Because those actions are not sustained by a change of what? A change in their mind. They've not actually what? Turned around and returned to God. Before it can be produced in, in your will, through your what? Through your actions. Repentance must have happened in what? On the inside. You can't fake it. You can try. Or it won't last. Because we're not wired that way. So I want us to go to the book of Luke chapter 3. Even as we close this evening. So we read the account in Matthew.
And I said that as we end, we're going to read the account in Luke as a comparison. The same story with John the Baptist. Luke 3, verse 8. Just to reiterate what he said, what we've already read. He said, bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of what? Of repentance. But let's go to verse 10 and let's see what he starts to say. It says, and the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? Verse 11, he answered and said unto them, he that had two coats, let him impart to him that had none. And he that had meat, let him do likewise. That's talking about giving. Then came also the publicans to, the, to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than which is what appointed to you. Verse 14, And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your what? With your wages. You can see that repentance does not exist in isolation. And the reason why I saved this for the end of today's lesson is that these actions that John is taking these people to, telling these people to take, they can only be taken if something has already happened on what? On the inside. If nothing has happened on the inside, it's not sustainable. They might do it for a little while. To just be pretense, they will go back to what? What their heart already believes. So essentially, if those soldiers have not truly what? Repented in their hearts and truly changed their mind about those actions and developed a revulsion for those things that they do. What John is saying is just empty words. They might try it for a little while, but they will always return back to form. Same with the publicans. So, yeah, they are fruits for repentance. When a man is truly repented, he reflects on the outside eventually. Because the person would not live the way they have been what? They have been living. So when a man is truly repented, when a man is truly clean, it is shown on the outside. But something that must have happened to what? On the inside first. The person must have changed their mind. The person must, must have also changed in their what? In their emotions. They must have experienced godly sorrow. And what we will come to see as we continue this in two weeks is the simple fact that the reason why people struggle with sin really is because one of this hasn't been done. There are people that have never truly been broken about something that they do or something in their lives. They've not really been able to see it from God's perspective the way we see that David did. Amen. They've not really been able to see how whatever it is that they are doing, and I mean Christians now, not just unbelievers, because for unbelievers it's a different thing, but even within the Christian faith, there are people who have not been able to see that weakness or that thing in their life or that habit as something that is really affecting their relationship with God. Something that is driving a wedge between them and God. Their relationship with God hasn't been put into such a perspective that it's so important. They're like, God, I can't lose you to this thing. 
for most of them, their perspective on it is still selfish. They are still on the realm where they simply just feel what? They feel bad occasionally. And feeling bad for wrongdoing does not last. The more you do wrong, the more your conscience gets used to it. Gets used to it. Whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever, that's just human nature. And you find out that for most people that struggle with sin, what they need is they need to learn what true repentance was is. Repentance is not something you do haphazardly. It comes from a place of what? Thought. Yeah. It's not something that you do, you, you don't stumble into it, amen. It's not a passive thing, it just it doesn't happen by mistake. So one of the things that I consider to be a pet peeve for myself as I close today is saying sorry. Amen. Saying what? Sorry. And I don't mean like saying it myself. I mean people telling me sorry. And I consider it to be a pet peeve and I'm just bear with me here because you see how it connects to repentance. I consider it to be a pet peeve because I don't have problems with the word sorry. But sometimes I think about society and I think about structure and I think of social norms. And I think of how some words have lost their words, their value and their words and their power. And one of the words that has lost its value or its power is what? I am sorry. Because it's a reflex what? Action. People just say it and they don't really mean it. They don't. You can be driving on the road and God help you. In Lagos, people are not well. Someone is your car. They won't even say sorry. Some people, depending on how brash they are, I even prefer those ones that just do it with their chest and just go. But you see the ones that will kiss your car or do something and their defense is, hey, but I don't talk sorry now. What do you want me to talk again? They don't mean it. It's a reflex what? It's a reflex action. It's a societal and cultural what norm, and I don't like it. You can't do anything about strangers, but particularly in my like in personal interactions, I don't like it if they don't mean it. That's just a pet peeve. It's not something that people should apologize to me for. But it's the same with God. We do it with God sometimes. Christians are so quick to say, oh God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But they don't actually reflect on what they have what they have done. They don't let the Spirit of God actually show them what led them to what? To that thing, the weaknesses and cracks and the hedges that they left open that the serpent was able to crawl in and what? And bite them. They have no idea what that is, and they don't care. They simply come to God and say, I'm sorry, because they want to feel good again. Because they are feeling what? Remorseful. Oh, I'm feeling bad about this thing. I want to quickly feel good. So we go, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Then they sing a lot of worship songs, and they feel all right, and they continue their Christian life. And before you know it, time passes, and they find themselves back at that place again, and they don't know why. It is because in reality, we do not know how to repent. And when Christians know how to repent, truly, 
will live a wonderful life. There's a reason why repentance is just once. True repentance, you do it just one time. On anything. Because when you change your mind, you don't change it back. That's the point. Repentance is turning 180 and moving in the opposite direction. You will have gone too far away from that thing to say you have gone back. So when we see cracks in our lives, we should check whether we truly repented. And a lot of times we'll find out that we didn't. Amen. Let me rise up to pray.